Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things that you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Jordan. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. The year 2020 saw the tragic deaths of Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. Tragically, these deaths were not anomalies, but video footage of the murder of Aubrey at the hands of self-deputized white men in Glenn County, Georgia, and video footage of the murder of Floyd at the hands of a white police officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota, helped to ignite the Black Lives Matter movement and renewed calls for reform of the criminal legal system steeped with racial bias. In June of 2020, Governor Roy Cooper established the North Carolina Task Force for Racial Equity in Criminal Justice and he appointed Anita Earls, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of North Carolina, and Josh Stein, Attorney General of North Carolina, as the task force co-chairs. Governor Cooper asked the task force to identify intentional and unintentional racial biases in the criminal legal system and law enforcement systems to help highlight the unequal outcomes resulting from these biases. Governor Cooper also charged the task force with making specific and actionable recommendations to help eliminate racial bias and create fair outcomes for Black people and communities of color. In its first report published in December 2020, the task force acknowledged that North Carolina has a tragic legacy of slavery, segregation, and racial violence and that North Carolina's criminal justice system is afflicted with longstanding and pervasive systemic racism. The task force also presented 125 recommendations to address these issues and eliminate racial inequalities baked into the criminal legal system. The task force report also included actions needed to implement the recommendations. The task force members have been working diligently throughout 2021 to implement its recommendations and released its second report in December of 2020. A few months ago, we had a chance to talk with the co-chairs of TREC, Justice Anita Earls and Attorney General Josh Stein about the progress of the task force. On tonight's show, we're gonna continue our discussion with two leaders on the task force. We have joining us this evening, Jasmine McGee, who is a Special Deputy Attorney General at the North Carolina Department of Justice and the Director of the Department's Public Protection Section. She also serves as co-lead counsel for the North Carolina Task Force of Racial Equity in Criminal Justice. And we also have with us Sam Davis, an attorney and judicial law clerk for North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Anita Earls. So thank you both for joining us this evening. Thank you, thanks for having us. Thank you. So first, let's get a little bit 
of information about your background. So how did you become interested in the law generally? And how did you get into your current position? And Attorney McGee, we'll start with you. Oh goodness, um, how I became interested in the law. Um, well, my mother's a lawyer. Uh, and so I wanted to be like my mom growing up. Um, so I wanted to be a lawyer as long as I could possibly remember. Um, and so I was one of those kids that just kind of kept my eye on the ball um, and went straight through from undergrad. And um, yeah, after um, going to law school, worked for most of my career at a big law firm in Washington, D.C., um, and always kind of had the plan that I would be working in a more public interest, public service type role, um, and had a very active pro bono practice and, and civil rights and such. Um, and um, when um, the Attorney General was elected, uh, Attorney General Stein, in the um, fall of 2016, I joined his staff in, um, in early in 2017. And um, my role now is to work broadly speaking on public safety and civil rights policy issues, um, which is a great privilege. And um, you know, we had been diligently working on a number of different things um, from bail reform to sexual assault kit backlog issues. Um, and as you mentioned in the, in the uh, spring of, of 2020, in the midst of the global pandemic, we also saw renewed attention on the issue of, of against black and brown people. Um, and so I've been really privileged um, to, to work with Sam and the entire team on the work of the, of the task force of Trek over the last two years. But it's, it's really been an extension of um, what my job already was. Um, but I have really appreciated the opportunity to be really um, focused on the question of racial equity. Um, and criminal justice and, and not just criminal justice reform for, for reform's sake, but um, to have equity as a centering piece of that work. Excellent, thank you. And Attorney Davis. Yeah, um, I had a uh, maybe a slightly slightly different path. Um, I was always interested in, in civil rights issues. Um, my and, and that came from my grandfather, who was a, a World War II veteran, who when he came back from the war. Uh, really thought that, you know, he felt he had been fighting for democracy and he wanted to continue that when he came back. And so he, I, you know, I grew up hearing from him about his experience marching in the civil rights era. And, you know, I, he would always um, write these long handwritten letters to uh, elected officials telling them how terribly they were doing. Um, and, and so that kind of inspired me to, to care about these issues. Um, I didn't, no, I wanted to be a lawyer. I, I, I graduated from college and then worked for a few years, um, but had been working in K-12 education and started to think, you know, started to see some of the issues recur that were kind of beyond the scope of what I could address in my position. So things like racial segregation um, and, and the legacy of how we order space uh, in America. And so that kind of led me to law school. Um, what led me to the task force was, was really Justice Earls. Um, I worked uh, in, in civil rights in various capacities when I was in law school and was just looking for some way to continue that uh, when I graduated. And when I saw an opportunity with Justice Earls, who's had this kind of incredible career um, fighting for the issues I cared about, I, I really just wanted to work for her. And um, that, that was the extent of my thinking, um, basically. 
Um, and I've been really fortunate since I came uh, into chambers with Justice Earls, uh, it coincided really with kind of the start of this task force. Um, and so in addition to the court work that I'm doing the everyday, supporting Justice Earls in her judicial function, um, I just I feel like it's been an incredible honor to be able to, to work with people like Jasmine, everyone on the task force, Professor Dawson, um, just to have this opportunity to try and make change in, in different ways. Um, and, 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 and yeah, that, that's, that's kind of how I ended up here. Well, great, thank you both. So in the intro, I, I talked a little bit about what prompted the creation of Trek. Do you all have anything to add to why Trek, why this particular task force was viewed as um, a vehicle by which to address these issues. And Attorney McGee, you were, you were there at the time. Can you talk about the creation of the task force? Sure, and you know, Attorney General Stein was um, you know, a, a huge supporter of this and, and worked with the governor and, and Justice Earls to, um, to think about the formation of this from the very beginning. Um, and, um, you know, as somebody that was already working in this space, um, I remember um, when I got the call um, from the attorney general that this was something that would happen. I mean, it, you know, tears came to my eyes, frankly, um, because I, um, in that moment, was feeling lost like so many other people. Um, and, but at the same time, feeling like, here we go again, you know, it'll be another cycle of something. Um, and so, you know, hearing um, that the governor wanted to do this and with, uh, you know, the support of other state leaders in North Carolina felt really different. And we've talked about it a lot since then that in some ways, one of the most transformative things that we did was exist. Um, that the state of North Carolina and its white Southern governor, you know, created something like a task force for racial equity and criminal justice and stood up and said, this is necessary um, and it's urgent. Um, and so, um, I think that's why, why a task force, it was necessary and it was urgent. Um, I mean, I think practically speaking, the political moment felt different too. It felt like there were, you know, moderate white people who were upset and, and um, you know, voters. I think all of that, you know, was relevant. Um, but whatever the sort of coalescence of factors, it felt like an urgent moment where something needed to be different and it needed to be um, more. Um, and so you heard, you heard, people talking, you know, again, white Southern uh, men saying Black Lives Matter, um, where, you know, that would have been seen as political suicide even a few years before. And so um, I think that's why, and I, you know, as I said, remain, remain grateful for that, um, although it's not enough for us to rest on that moment and have to sort of keep pushing forward for something long lasting. And I, I think we've tried to do that over the last two years. Well, from, from your perspective and, and from your experiences, uh, just how pervasive is this uh, racial bias and racial antagonism uh, within the uh, criminal justice uh, process? And then I guess a follow-up question to that is, can the people, uh, those of us who are out here in the regular world expect that the, uh, the institution that maintains that uh, will uh, correct, will change uh, what has been going on for literally 
uh, centuries in this country? Well, so <laughs> it's a, a, a big question and I think something we wrestle with regularly, um, uh, both you know, in a, administering the task force, but also personally, I, I think, you know, I don't wanna speak for you, Jasmine, but I know it's something I wrestle with when I think about um, how to do this work, how to do it ethically and what we can hope to get out of it. Um, I think to maybe speak a little bit to that second question. So can institutions, that have perpetuated um, systemic oppression, can they produce justice? Um, I think, you know, however, whatever the actual answer to that question is, the answer is in part, you know, if there's not pressure on those institutions, um, if there aren't people out in the streets demanding that those institutions change, um, it, it, you know, there's, the institutions aren't gonna change themselves. Um, and so I think, you know, in the context of the task force, um, by nature, by design, the task force is, is bringing in people from a variety of perspectives, stakeholders who have different views on what the criminal justice system is set up to do, how it's functioning, um, you know, a shared commitment to addressing racial disparities, um, but, but different visions. Um, but I think one other design feature of the task force is that it is meant to continue um, eliciting input from the public and continue to be responsive to what the public is demanding. So, I, you know, Jasmine talked about what the moment was in 2020 when this task force started. Um, this task force wouldn't have started without that public pressure. Uh, and I think, you know, to the extent that we have, that the, the extent that we can, um, we have tried to maintain that kind of responsiveness. Um, in terms of the first question, um, how pervasive are racial disparities in the criminal justice system? I mean, I think, you know, if you look at our report, it's really trying to address every aspect of the criminal justice system, you know, before people get involved, when they're involved, and the legacy of being involved in the criminal justice system that persists throughout people's lives and that affects just entire communities in ways that are very obviously um, racially disproportionate. Um, and so I would say that they are pervasive. Um, they intersect with things outside the criminal justice system. Um, and, I, and I think, again, if you, if you look at our report and the work we're doing, we recognize that the criminal justice system is situated in communities, right? It's not this thing that exists separate and apart from society. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it is, it is pervasive and that makes it a really big task. Um, but I think that speaks kind of to, to why we, you know, this is an ambitious effort and, and something that was really needed at the time. Uh, this is the uh, Legal Legal Review. And uh, we are talking about the uh, Racial Equity uh, Task Force formed by uh, Governor Cooper in uh, 2020. And our guests this evening are Jasmine McGee who is a uh, special deputy attorney general for the North Carolina Department of Justice and uh, Samuel Davis, uh, who is an attorney and judicial law clerk for uh, the uh, Audible Anita Earls, uh, associate for Supreme Court uh, Justice. We're going to uh, take our break right now. I want you to uh, stay with us as we continue this uh, discussion and we'll be uh, right back.
North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCC Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us as we uh, continue this discussion on the uh, Task Force for Racial Equity in Criminal Justice that was created by Governor uh, Roy Cooper in uh, June 2020, following uh, some uh, very public and uh, uh, stressful days and times. Uh, dealing with the uh, death of uh, Breonna Taylor, uh, George uh, Floyd, Marbury, and, and others. And uh, that um, served as the foundation to create the, uh, the task force. And our guests tonight are discussing uh, that with us. When we uh, took our break, we were dealing with the question of the uh, pervasiveness of uh, racial animosity and racial bias here in North Carolina and whether the uh, state uh, as an institution in which these uh, uh, the criminal justice process is a part of uh, can realistically be expected to uh, reform itself, to correct itself, uh, and to bring about uh, relief to those who uh, have uh, experienced the uh, negative uh, impact of the system. And uh, uh, we're going to let uh, Attorney McGee uh, speak to uh, her uh, response to that issue. Well, you know, I I, I would say it is pervasive. It's uh, it's pervasive, um, you know, from uh, our emergency response um, system all the way through our reentry period. And I think, you know, as Sam said, that's that's reflected in our report. It's reflected in the data that we sh we showed. Um, you know, I think. What's most interesting about that, though, is is while we know that there are that some of this is is not as some would say uh, a design defect, but a, a a function of the system, and I think we, we know that. Um, but it's also true that um, the the uh, the role of race is not always as clear um, as you know, sort of this is a this is a back of the bus situation, right? And that's what makes it so dangerous is that sometimes policies seem 
race neutral on their face, but we know that the impact of those policies is, uh, you know, creates significant disparities. Um, you know, I was uh, just hearing from a colleague who had gone to the statewide reentry council uh, conference a week ago talking about, and one of the people is about transitional housing um, for uh, people who are reentering. Um, and we know uh, the disparity in terms of, uh, the, um, of black people being overrepresented in our state incarceration facilities. And uh, there was a transitional housing provider who said, yeah, 78% of our transitional housing clients are white, um, which was just like, all right. So the, the disparities upon the disparities upon the disparities. Um, but you know, I, I think the other piece of this is um, we know there's inequity in every part of our society. Um, and all of those pieces feed into the criminal justice system as well. And so, and you know, the task force is very clear that it's a big enough issue to focus on racial inequity and criminal justice, much less racial inequity in housing and education and healthcare. Um, and so one of the things that we really try to do is, is, is make that connection, you know, make that connection between trauma and violence make that connection um, between lack of um, and, 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 um, and unsafe communities, um, as opposed to criminal justice involvement as, as you know, sort of a moral failing or an indictment on people's character. Um, and, and so we really talk a lot about reimagining public safety and reimagining our, our systems to think bro more broadly. Um, and, and again, much like what we've seen um, with changing culture around substance use disorder, um, I think that's one big picture goal um, of the task force is to really reimagine and, and invite us to think differently. Um, you know, I agree with everything that Sam said about, um, about government institutions. And before we were on the air, I talked to you a little bit about my own, you know, experience and trying to work from the inside um, as opposed to as an external stakeholder. And I tell my activist friends, we all have a role to play. Um, in this work, and I, and I guess, you know, because we've all said how much the public and pressure has been important, um, you know, on that same theme of reimagining, we need the public to be there with us. We need, you know, the public to continue thinking about these issues differently. You know, we, the Attorney General talks a lot about how you hear rural sheriffs now talking about how you can't arrest your way out of, you know, substance use. Um, which is, is different than what you used to hear. Um, and we need, we need that to be the norm, what, what people think is, is reasonable um, as, and, and, um, you know, as opposed to uh, criminal justice responses to all, all social problems. And both of you have talked about the enormity of the problem. And, and so the um, task of the task force is huge and, and that's an understatement, right? So Sam kind of talked about, you know, looking at every aspect of the criminal legal system. So, you know, before, during, after, um, Jasmine, you talked about how these equity issues affect every aspect of our society and that feeds into the criminal legal system. So could you talk about the goals of the task force and how the priorities were set? Because there are so many areas that need to be addressed and it's a lot to do um, in a relatively short period of time. How did the task force go about identifying the areas to focus on um, kind of first and foremost? In terms of the, in 
round one or, or in the implementation round? So why don't you, um, so that's a great question. Why don't you talk about the, the round one, um, kind of identifying the priorities and the recommendations, and then after we can talk about the implementation. Sure. Um, well, in terms of round one, I, 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 I feel like every time this comes up, I have to say we were given a very tight timeline. Uh, the task force was, was uh, the executive order was in June of 2020. The report was due in December of 2020. So, you know, 400 years and, you know, a little over six months. Um, and it was, it was, you know, a, a challenging endeavor. Um, and uh, the members of the task force and staff worked really hard to to develop that. And the, the executive order created some areas for us to focus on. Um, and then uh, the task force in its one of its first meetings voted on what else it wanted to, to focus on. And you know, for better or worse, that that, you know, when the task force first started, it first started, it was obviously focused on policing, right? That was the reason that the task force was created. But you know, even early on in the executive order kind of crafting period it became apparent it needed to really look at the entire system. Um, and um, the, the task force itself decided to focus um, even more broadly on, for example, prison system issues, um, sentencing issues, reentry issues, um, you know, fines and fees has been a, a, a one of the areas that, that, um, that Sam's been spending a lot of time on. Um, so I think, you know, there were big picture areas the executive order identified and then the task force expanded that a little. Um, and then it was, you know, based on what we were able to learn. I mean, even now, a year and some change later, we're still thinking of things like, oh, you know, we could have had a recommendation on that. You know, we could have given more detail on that. I mean, um, there's always so much more that you can do, but, but we did what we could in a, in a six month period. Um, and then in terms of the strategy, and I, I would welcome Sam's thoughts on this as well, um, that also was driven by the members. Um, you know, we as staff suggested uh, an implementation-based approach. Um, and, and so we went from having substantive working groups where we were working on things like law enforcement practices, law enforcement accountability, court system practices, to committees that were based on how, who could implement so we have an executive committee, a judicial committee, a, a legislative committee, and a local committee. We also have a communications and data committees. Um, then the, the co-chairs assign recommendations to each one of those committees. Um, and every committee operates a little bit differently. Um, there's lots of freedom in that way, um, but they've all had to sort of prioritize um, you know, what, what they wanna focus on and, and what they think is achievable. Um, and that also changes, what is achievable changes. Um, and um, so I think that, that, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, I think the only, maybe two things I would add. So, so one kind of as a framing, um, you know, the fact that the problems are so pervasive uh, is reflected in the recommendations. I think 125 recommendations, which is a lot of recommendations to try and implement um, you know, that can be really daunting. It can feel like this problem is so big. How can we possibly solve it? Um, I think at the same time, the thing we try to integrate into our work on the task force is that, yes, these problems are really pervasive, but that means there's a lot of points where we can try and intervene and make things better. Uh, and when you intervene in one point, uh, that 
that is both, you know, addressing a real problem, but that can also create the kind of momentum where all of a sudden, like Jasmine said, you have people talking about these issues in a different way because they've now encountered uh, them in a, in, in a maybe a way they didn't expect. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of how we prioritize our work in this implementation phase, you know, we have incredible members and incredible leadership from our co-chairs, um, but, but we don't have the authority to just, you know, wave a magic wand and implement things. Um, and so a lot of what we can do is bringing the data to the table, working with stakeholders and, and helping kind of foster a conversation where people understand what they can do in their positions uh, to make change. And so um, that kind of prioritization is really relying on the best expertise, best knowledge of our membership, as well as you know, continuing to integrate public feedback, um, figuring out, okay, what are the most pressing issues and what are the things that we can do today that uh, will make a difference? Uh, and I think that's really a, a, a place where just having the members be so engaged and who bring their own set of experiences and understandings about this work, I think that's just been, like we could not have done this work without um, members who kept showing up to our meetings and, and like have committed and recommitted to doing this work. You know, that, that those responses uh, kind of begs a couple of other questions. Uh, first of all, let me just commend the task force for the creation of some progressive recommendations. Uh, and uh, clearly the recommendation uh, out front of where the uh, agents and actors in the criminal justice process in North Carolina find themselves. Uh, and um, in order to implement uh, probably most or all of these uh, recommendations, uh, you have to call on other people uh, who are at the lower end of the totem pole. And the question of whether the uh, problems are intentional or if they are inherent parts of the criminal justice uh, process. So you had a report uh, that came out in 2020. Uh, it was followed up with uh, an implementation report in 2021. Uh, uh, can you point to some specific uh, efforts, uh, successes that uh, where you were able to get the actors in the system to make some significant changes, some meaningful changes uh, within how the system is uh, being operated today? Sure. Um, well, I, I mean, I think it, you have to start with legislative change, right? Um, you know, there was, um, you know, Senate Bill 300, um, which um, was by all intents and purposes, a, a compromise bill. It didn't uh, do all of the things that the task force would have recommended, but it did do a lot of things. Uh, you know, it, it cr created a duty to intervene um, law enforcement with regard to use of force. It um, created, uh, you know, new training requirements. It created um, a uh, officer decertification database, uh, a critical incident database. Um, it did, did some uh, new requirements with regard to Giglio um, and, and law enforcement, um, psychological screenings required um, for law enforcement. And it was, um, it was hard fought. And, it, you know, many times we thought it would uh, not make it all the way through. Um, and, you know, that's obviously legislate, legislative process is, is compromised by definition and it's, it's uh, needs to be bipartisan by definition. Um, 
But we knew from the very beginning that we could not rely on legislative change um, to make all of or even most of the work. Um, and so I think that most of our success has really been in local initiatives. Um, and, and I would push back a little bit and say that, you know, we're, we're surprised, we're, we're often surprised at the places where these are not radical ideas and they're not always in our urban, um, you know, centers. Um, there are places all across North Carolina and rural communities where, you know, leaders have, have wanted to make a difference. Now I'll tell you that people come to the table for different reasons. Maybe not everyone's coming to the table for racial equity and criminal justice. Maybe they're coming because you know they got a big drug problem in their, their community and they wanna do something about it. Or maybe they're coming because they need to save money on a new jail and they recognize that the way we've been doing criminal justice is way too expensive and there's a better way and a more efficient way to do it. I don't care why you come to the table. We've got it. I say all the time, it's like we work with Elizabeth Warren or, or, or Apple. We got an app. We got a recommendation for that. We've got something for you that will, um, you know, not only improve racial equity, but it will make our government more efficient and it'll make us safer. Um, so, so, you know, really focusing on those local actors has been in, an important part of our work. And we have seen bail reform at the local level. We've seen uh, reimagining emergency response and co-responder and non-law enforcement responses. We've seen violence intervention programs being started across the state. So we've seen a number of different recommendations that have been implemented at the local level. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of recommendations also being implemented in, in, the, in the state prison system and at the um, law enforcement training and standards commissions. So it's really necessary for our work to be creative and, and, and thinking about the ways in which we can, we can make success. Um, but I think we have a lot more allies in there, out there than, than people would expect. Um, and so I hope that, can, that momentum can continue. All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. We have been talking this hour about the North Carolina Task Force for Racial Equity in Criminal Justice, or as is commonly known, TREC. And our guests with us here in our Zoom studio are Jasmine McGee, a Special Deputy Attorney General at the North Carolina Department of Justice, and the Director of the Department's Public Protection Section and also Co-Lead Counsel for TREC and also Attorney Sam Davis, who is a Judicial Law Clerk for North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Anita Earls. We're gonna have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I am currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. 
My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour about the North Carolina Task Force for Racial Equity in Criminal Justice. This task force is often referred to as TREC. And our guest with us this evening is attorney Jasmine McGee. She is a special deputy attorney general for the North Carolina Department of Justice and attorney Sam Davis, who is a judicial law clerk for North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Anita Earls. So both of you have been providing us with really helpful information about the creation of the task force, the work of the task force, and you've both emphasized the need for um, stakeholders to come together to try and identify the problems and come up with solutions, the need for creative collaboration. Can you spend a little bit of time talking about the makeup of the task force? Who was chosen to be on the task force and, and why was it so important to have um, so many different stakeholders from different areas of the community? And um, Attorney Davis, let's start with you. Yeah, um, I think so the composition of the task force, the membership, I mean, really refl reflects uh, every aspect. And basically, anyone who uh, is involved in the criminal justice system in any capacity, I think, is represented on the task force. And, and so that means um, folks who are within the judicial system. Um, we have district court judges, superior court judges, um, you know, people who are advocating uh, for, for individuals in the criminal justice system. We have... Uh, defense attorneys, DAs, um, and then, you know, people who are kind of adjacent to the criminal justice system, um, but are working on these issues. Um, so we have uh, directly impacted folks, we have advocates, um, you know, we have a law enforcement uh, is a big presence. And I think the, the reason for that is just because we need everyone at the table to, to even have a chance um, at, at trying to address these issues. Um, I, the only other thing I would say is, you know, we have our formal membership, but that's not the only way we've had people get involved. Uh, so we hear from specific communities or specific stakeholders regularly, especially when we have um, issues where we need someone's expertise. So, you know, I, I have been involved with, with you, Professor Dawson, in the, um, in the judicial committee uh, so when we've been working on things like fines and fees, um, we're hearing from people like the North Carolina Fines and Fees Coalition who are sending us letters, showing up at our meetings, um, telling us what they see, what their perspective is. Um, but then when we're moving towards implementation, we're talking to people like the clerks um, who are responsible for um, dealing with kind of this, the flow of these kinds of cases, right? Or talking to people uh, from the government who can give us a perspective on how fines and fees, um, you know, what kinds of funding implications are, and also the costs of trying to collect fines and fees, things like that. Um, so I think we've just really benefited um, from the breadth of, of perspective that both in the formal membership and just involved in this process. And can you talk a little bit about uh, your public engagement 
in terms of the community at large, and not necessarily those people who are uh, inherently a part of the uh, system or the process, uh, but uh, the consumer, like like me, uh, who uh, suffer from uh, those things that happen on a regular basis, you know, like the victims of crime and, and things like that. So can you talk a little bit about uh, that and the outreach that you're engaged in? Sure. Um, you know, well, I mean, I, I would be remiss in not saying that from the very beginning, it was very important to Justice Earls and Attorney General Stein that there be public engagement in this process. And so during round one, in the recommendation making phase, there were public comment sessions, several public comment sessions and listening sessions um, as the task force did its work in which the entire task force was present and they were pub uh, the public was invited to come and give and give feedback. And we've continued that public comment uh, portion of every quarterly task force meeting now that we're meeting on a quarterly basis um, in the implementation phase. And um, we hear from people whether they're happy with us or not. Um, and, and we benefit from that. And it is, it is valuable. Um, one of the things that we've done um, in addition to um, sort of those informal uh, sort of um, hearing from people, I guess formally as well in terms of meetings. Um, we've set up a number of advisory groups. Um, the, the task force has a law enforcement advisory group of people who were not a part of the task force who didn't necessarily have to agree with every recommendation of the task force, but had to be committed to racial equity and criminal justice. And they've helped us think through you know, not what the recommendations should be. They are what they are, but how can we get them accomplished? Um, I have a colleague who likes to say meat eaters only want to hear from meat eaters. So we needed meat eaters to be at the table and help us to figure out how to get uh, their colleagues to consider some of these policies and practices. Similarly, we've recently started a, a prosecutor advisory group for the same purpose. Um, and then, you know, to that, to that other part of the question, one of the, the um, sort of groups, convening groups that we're most excited about is a victim survivor group um, where we are meeting uh, as staff, we're meeting with um, victims and survivors of crime um, to talk about these recommendations, to talk about them from, from their perspective and, and have victim advocates represented in the task force. Um, but even in making the recommendations, we recognize that that was a group that we needed to hear more from. So that actually was a recommendation that we get to accomplish ourselves. There are not many that we get to accomplish ourselves. Uh, so we created a, you know, this advisory group to, to talk with us um, about this work and and what's been really heartening about it, uh, you know, as somebody at, um, who, as I said, has worked on sexual assault policy, I've worked on domestic violence policy, and I've also worked on criminal justice reform. There's also this often this false dichotomy that's set up as if you you know you work for victims of crime and you work for public safety or you work for criminal justice reform, and and I I sort of reject that dichotomy. Um, and I think one of the things that the task force can do, I mentioned reimagining public safety, is um, make really clear that the work of criminal justice reform is the work of public safety. It is the work of trying to repair harm. Um, it is the work of keeping us all safe. Um, it is not sort of letting everybody run amok and do whatever. Um, and, and talking with victims and survivors, what's incredibly powerful about that is, is they see that. Um, and you know, victims are not a monolith, just like black folks are not a monolith. Um, but one of the things that you see consistently um, is that, that, that victims and survivors often talk about you know, one thing, you know, wanting to understand why, you know, what happened to them happened to them, but also not wanting it to happen to someone else. Um, and I, I think our system doesn't necessarily ask that question enough because it's so focused on punitive um, responses um, as opposed to those responses that can really reduce recidivism, reduce harm. Um, and so we're really excited about 
that conversation and having that conversation with people who are who've directly been impacted. And the other part of it is we know that those are not those are not static categories, right? Like people move from the person who has done harm to the person who has been harmed. Uh, we know that most most violence is is, is intra-community, um, and so uh, you know really seeing how those relationships are formed and how that trauma manifests itself. Um, is really important to the work of the task force. And it's one of the things that, that I'm, I'm most excited about as we continue our, our work. Yeah, and Attorney McGee, yeah, I like what you were saying about the work of criminal justice reform is the work of public safety. And, and that's you know a never ending um, um, issue that has to be addressed. And the task force though is not yet, I hope <laughs> yet, um, a permanent entity. And so can you both kind of talk about, um, as far as the creation of the task force, it was anticipated that it would go through 2022. Um, and what efforts are being made to make this either the task force permanent or the, the ongoing work of the task force uh, continuing beyond 2022? Well, first we should just say uh, it's, it is likely going to be the governor if the, if something you know if something were to happen uh, you know I think the, you know, the task force made a recommendation is there in black and white or in purple and gold or whatever the <laughs> colors of the the graphic designer for the report um, you know that there be a permanent body to do this work um, the task force felt that it was important we know this is the ultimate long term project um, and that you know there be a permanent entity that does this work in North Carolina, uh, you know, practically speaking, we think it, that the only stakeholder that is likely to do that or do something to continue this work is the governor. And so the governor um, will have to decide what to do about that and what the best way to continue this work is. Um, I think there is a commitment on behalf of, of all of the stakeholders involved, including the government, a governor that this work continue. Um, the question is how? Um, and those conversations are ongoing now at, with various stakeholders to try to figure out what that could look like. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of ideas on the table and, and it, it remains to be seen. Um, but, but I do think it's important that everybody recognizes this work is unfinished. Um, and, and I think reasonable people can disagree about what it ought to look like, but um, I'm heartened that, that everybody knows we've got to keep going. What about uh, new problems that have developed uh, in the process? Your task force report dealt with issues and concerns up to 2020. Uh, since then, we've had the uh, pandemic uh, and other uh, issues have uh, arisen. Uh, how has the uh, task force addressed uh, those, uh, those new uh, concerns and or concerns that were not addressed uh, previously? Uh, by the uh, task force report. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of built into the way the task force tries to operate. Um, so obviously the pandemic has had a, a huge influence on, I, I mean, on everything, on how we do our work internally as a task force, um, but also on the kinds of problems um, that stakeholders are facing as they try to do their jobs every day. Uh, and so I think, yeah, structurally we're set up to try and be responsive to what people are experiencing um, kind of in their day-to-day -day lives. And so just naturally, um, a lot of that has filtered into our work. Um, in terms of new problems, like I think Jasmine, like Jasmine said, you know, we, um, 
these are the kind of problems where you start digging and there's no bottom. Um, you, you keep digging and there are just, you learn something new and then that raises a new question. And then you, you have to try and answer that question. Uh, and, you know, it just, it, it goes on and on. Uh, and so I think, you know, maybe this is more of kind of a, of an attitude um, uh, about how we do our work, but it's not like we, we issued these recommendations and now our only job is just to try and implement those recommendations as quickly as possible. That, that is obviously one of our jobs, um, but, but we recognize there's a lot we don't know and there's a lot we as a body are still learning. Uh, and so I think we have some, some measure of humility uh, about, um, yeah, what, what we do and do not know. And as we learn new things, we're gonna, we're gonna change how we work. And I think, you know, like uh, Professor Dawson, you, you, you've seen, I think in, in our committees, um, we're always adapting um, as we get more information and bringing in new stakeholders or maybe trying a new approach when we learn something that hasn't worked. Um, and, and I think we're gonna continue to do that in you know, whatever capacity uh, this takes, this, this is going forward. And I think because of that, I, I, would, I would say one of the most important things we, we, um, we do, and I, I may have said this before, is really try to work to, to be in the conversation um, and to sort of promote the culture change that creates an environment for us to respond to new problems and challenges. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I was just talking about violence before. Um, and, and I think one of the things the pandemic has shown is an increase in, in gun violence, right? Um, and, you know, there are options for how you respond to that. Um, and there's, there's significant fear that some people may respond with a, back, a backslide, right? Um, so it's important, as I said, for not only for us to talk about the fact that these ideas are to promote public safety, that you know, violence intervention programs can be a new and innovative way for you to address gun violence in your community, um, as opposed to just thinking you can go and arrest everybody that has a gun, um, disproportionately black and brown people, um, but that these, um, these, that this, this, uh, this, this culture um, is, is something that is um, that can be more broadly addressed um, than what we might originally think, that, that one part of it. And then the, I guess the other part of it is that it's really important to make people understand that the criminal justice system is not what you might assume. It is still largely a nonviolent misdemeanor system. So while you may be concerned about increasing gun violence, I am, I'm a parent, like, you know, I, I live in this community. I wanna live in a safe community as well. Um, there's a whole subset of things that don't have anything to do with violence, but are still deeply inequitable. Um, and so, you know, let's not fear monger and think that all of this has to do with um, the most violent and most serious crimes. Um, when we have, you know, significant numbers of people being incarcerated and in, 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 in part of the criminal justice system for nonviolent offenses. Mm, yeah, excellent points from, from both of you. And we have um, a few minutes left. Can you share with our listening audience if they want to get more information about the work of the task force, if they want to participate um, in some way with the work that the task force is doing or provide feedback and, and comments, how would they go about doing that? So we've got a website, um, ncdoj.gov slash trek, T-R-E-C. Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> visit us there. We've got all kinds of information about our meetings. You can sign up for public comment. You can submit feedback. Um, 
we, you can participate in our, our committee meetings. They're um, you know, all, all listed there. And so um, we, we wanna hear from you, but if I, if I could flip the question around in just a little bit and, and encourage people who wanna get engaged in the task force to also get engaged with their own stakeholders. Um, they, they have incredible influence and power and can really change um, so much about what happens in their, in their local communities just by getting involved. Yeah, I would I would just echo that. Uh, you know, we've we and we we get emails, calls all the time from folks who have an opinion, want some, you know, have have experienced something, want us to know about it, want us to factor it into our work, and we do really take those seriously. Um, and, and so, would definitely encourage everyone to do that. And and yeah, definitely get involved. Um, so many of I think we've been learning this. So 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 many of the issues we're addressing have both local manifestations and have local solutions. Um, and we, we don't know what those, you know, we can help guide conversations and help bring best practices to the table, but we don't know and we can't know what the best solution is for any given community that has to come from the community. And so I would really, really encourage people to get involved, you know, elections, but also just kind of be there, be present. Uh, you know, these are the issues. Um, you know, on helping to address these issues on a local level. Well, we are out of time and thank you both for providing your insight and um, information about the work of the North Carolina Task Force for Racial Equity in the criminal justice system. Uh, we'd like to thank our guests, Jasmine McGee, a special deputy attorney general at the North Carolina Department of Justice and director of the department's public protection section and co-lead counsel for TREC and attorney Sam Davis, judicial law clerk for North Carolina Supreme Court Justice Anita Earls. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.